Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel you're going to find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is going to be on there. You're going to find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts all that you can follow along with and the best part is that it's completely free they're also around 10 to 20 minutes long meaning if you're short of time you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout new workouts will go live on the channel every tuesday and thursday and they're going to be accompanied by an amazing backdrop which i'm sure you're all going to enjoy so if you want to find the channel just search elliot hasoon into youtube and you'll find it very easily and please subscribe it makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom DeJersey. Tom is a physiotherapist, coach and exercise enthusiast. I was introduced to Tom's Instagram page and after seeing his valuable content and his controversial opinions, I knew he was someone I had to speak to. This conversation didn't disappoint whatsoever and was personally a really enjoyable one for myself, so I'm looking forward to seeing what you all take away. In this episode, you can expect to learn what are some of the best ways to avoid getting injured, whether you're a regular gym goer or an elite athlete how to spot a bad physiotherapist and the traits you should be looking out for in a good one, along with why we shouldn't be following the workout routines of our favorite influencers. So without further ado, Tom DeJersey. Tommy DeJersey, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good, mate. How are you? Thank you for having me on. I am very, very well. And it's my pleasure. And before we dive into the health and fitness side of things, I actually want to ask, how's married life so far? Well, six weeks in, maybe almost seven weeks in, I feel like we're doing the easy part right now. You know, we had the wedding, which was obviously very fun. The honeymoon, which I don't know if too much can go wrong there. How's married life so far? Good, mate. It's really good. My wife's a fucking legend. Life is good. Yeah. I love that. I love to hear people have super amounts of appreciation for their significant others as well. Because it seems a little bit more fashionable to be like, yeah, I've got this person and you know they're all right. But anytime anyone asks them about it, they're like low-key in public, but they're super you know, loving to their wife or their husband in private. So it's beautiful to hear you say how awesome she is. And I wish you guys all the best. And we'll, I'll, I'll have to get you on in another five years or so and see what that question sounds like then. Well, I'll have a check-in. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yearly check-ins. <laughs> so I want to go into your story first and foremost and ask you, where did it all begin for you and what do you do? Maybe for those who haven't come across the work that you do, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, cool. So I'm a, I'm a physio by trade, a physiotherapist. I, I had my rotator cuff like in a quite mild way playing high school rugby union and I couldn't like lift my arm up or open a door um, and so I was told to see a physio. Went to the physio and parents took me. The, this bloke was in shorts at work and he had a gym in his office and I was like, brother, that's sick. <laughs> that looks like a cool job. And then, you know, the uni sort of thing happens. You go put your preferences down and try and work out what you think you might get into. And so I listed physio, which is like a 
quite a high mark in Australia. You don't need to be overwhelmingly clever to be a physio, I don't think. I think people skills are more important. But someone made a clerical error that let me in and I bluffed my way through and got a degree and that was great and then sort of started working. And there's this like big gap, I think, in what physios do where we see people in that like really acute stage where stuff is wrong and red hot and irritated and angry. And then we get them back to like, nah, it's probably pretty good. And then away you go. And so I just started sort of offering care to people a little beyond that and being like, hey, like I think a good physio should be talking to your coach or your trainer and being like, hey, what's up? Can we make these changes? Like, what do we think about this, this, and this? They should be doing, shouldn't be doing. And then a couple of people were just sort of like, oh, like you're basically doing this for me anyway and I don't have a coach. Like, why don't you just write the whole thing? And I was like, I could do that. That'd be fun. So the Tommy's tips, I suppose, and what I do a bit more now is like an extension of that. I started posting the answers, I suppose, to my FAQs, my frequently asked questions on Instagram at the start, like just when COVID was kicking off and it was like, fuck, am I going to have a job like in six weeks? Like the whole world is about to shut down. And it seemed to really resonate with people. A couple of people shared me in places that meant that my following grew a little bit. I don't have an enormous following, but I'm really fortunate to have a really solid client base as a result of a small following. That means that Tommy's Tips is the bulk of the work I do now um, in terms of my income, which is mad. And then I do a couple of days a week still as a face-to-face physio because um, I enjoy it. It's really rewarding. And it's also easier to keep my registration current than it is to let it lapse and then go back and get it again. So I think you got to do like 300 or 500 or so many hours a year, which is like five hours a week. You may as well just do a couple more if you're going to do five. So yeah, that's kind of who I am and what I'm doing at the moment, I suppose. Dude, that sounds incredible. I like that you've got the blend between the two. And do you see Tommy's tips fully taking over or do you see yourself maintaining that physiotherapist status long into the future? I think the lens that I look at stuff through is very physio-based. You know, we know a lot about uh, load and exercise prescription being related to niggles and injuries and things like that. So do I think I'd be doing training stuff full-time? Yeah, I have absolutely no problem with that. I think it's like a more lucrative and probably for me a more enjoyable career path at this stage. But I, I like physio. I really enjoy the... The therapeutic alliance, I suppose, the relationship you build with people in the treatment room. But I don't like going to work and like sitting around in a room and being, if you're not busy, waiting to be, you know, like a half hour gap between patients. Patients is annoying because there's a gap. You just kind of sit there. You've always got paperwork to do, but I don't do paperwork. No one does. I think the future, my wife is, um, she's a women's health physio. She's kind of upskilling in that area. She was a like is was I don't know how you have to ask her that an athlete. She played high level water polo, and she got like this really cool structure around training uh, in that high performance space. So I think that providing people with an experience like that, you know, being coached, having help, having regular feedback and input. We, she and I were lucky. I went to like a, a school where that was a thing, and we had a guy that ran the gym, and we got programs and stuff. And so I've been doing that since I was 15. I think helping people who didn't get that or who would like to have that, experience that, learn about their body, learn how to move better, and kind of like upskill them with tools that will last them a really long time is like a thing that I'm quite passionate about. So we're not exactly sure what that's going to look like in the in the long term. We have some ideas about the midterm, but you know, watch this space, I suppose. Yeah, it's exciting times ahead. And I'm very curious about your 
transition towards more training based stuff because of it's usually the other way around. I don't know if you found that as well. It's usually that someone's a coach for maybe between five and 15, maybe even 20 years if they last that long as a personal trainer or a coach. And then they transition into the route of physiotherapy later down the line. Can you explain a little bit about how you've gone in perhaps more the unconventional direction of going from the physiotherapy route down into the training side of things? Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think it's a thing. Like through uni, a whole stuff, most of the mature age or the slightly older, not mature age, but the slightly older people in my cohort, like not the undergrad, like 18 year olds like I was, were PTs or exercise professionals who were like, nah, I keep referring to a physio, may as well be one. Um, <laughs> I think in our industry, uh, there's like, if, physio in Australia is tricky because the entry requirement is really high, right? So you get these like, uh, overachievers who are quite intelligent. The salary, I don't think, is as high as the job title would indicate. So, like the the, the payment for the work is probably not in line with what you could get in a different industry, which is part one. And then I think the second part of being a physio is you are trying to fix people, which means that eventually they'll be discharged. So, I, if you find me an industry where you get a hot lead, you service the lead, and then you get rid of the lead, it's not a, to do it ethically without over servicing, without like recurrent billing, trying to see people all the time to stuff your books and stuff your wallet. It's quite a fine balance. And I don't want to be the physio that over services. That's not a thing I want to do. So, exercise is a lovely way to provide value to people and to continue a relationship with them outside of the treatment room. And then they are still close. You can still treat them when they need it, you can modify their exercise exercises, you can build in build in stuff to deal with the niggles they're doing. So I think that to me makes more sense from a client care standpoint and from like a financial standpoint. And then the, the longer we uh, start, the longer I stay alive, the more the literature is pointing towards exercise as one of the more serious moderators and modes or modalities, I should say, for pain. Um, if you look at pain science, what we think about pain has changed a lot in the last 20 years, but for me as well, what I was taught at uni is now no longer considered correct, which is wild. And I think there is a big shift in physio towards exercise because of the literature that's coming out. It, it, it seems to be that the hands-on stuff we used to think was moving joints and modifying pain, all that sort of stuff, has like a really short-term input. More will become, I suppose, apparent as we continue to study it. But it looks like we are able to do less with our hands than we once thought. Um, and more with exercise than we thought. Uh, so for me, exercise is a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. I have good memories of one of the physios that worked in the gym where I worked at when I first became a personal trainer. And he spent about half the client session in his office and half the client session down in the gym as well, like working through exercises that they might be able to take away. And I always thought that that was a fantastic approach. And again, typically I would have expected that a physio would have spent the majority of time in the office doing the massage work, doing yeah the work on the body with their hands, as you mentioned. But he spent a significant amount of time in the gym and he was someone who I trusted quite highly in the early stages of my career as well. So do you see that a direction it's going in? And do you think that there's rationale to say that if a physio is spending more time with you in an office than perhaps promoting exercise, then that might be a little bit of a problem and it might be a little more of an old-fashioned approach. Would you say that's the direction we're essentially heading in? Um, without trying to offend people who were trained earlier than I was, yeah. Uh, I think there is... It's hard because anecdotally, the patient does leave the treatment room feeling better after being treated, right? Like after hands-on treatment, 
right? Typically, what we find, though, is that that effect is really short-lasting, short-lived. There are a, a school of physios who will tell you that that, even if it's a placebo effect, that effect is valid and worthwhile and we should continue to do that. The pain science school of thought is we want to modulate and help with pain where we can, but we want to get people back to doing as much as they can and loading sore structures within pain-free limits as early as possible. And I'm very much in that school of thought. And I, you know, I was very much a hands-on is the way coming out of uni. And I'm sure my mind will change again. Um, but where I currently sit, based on the, the the current slate of evidence, is exercise is going to do a whole lot more for people, and not like go for a walk, but like how can we load the structures that are problematic to the best of our ability, so that you can keep a lid on your pain, you can change how you're moving, feel really good. Um, so I'm firmly of the opinion that if you're a runner, a cyclist, if you're in the gym, whatever, if your physio's clinic doesn't isn't set up to cater for your needs it's probably not the right place for you to be. For example, if you're a power lifter and there's no barbell at the physio's office or there's no access to a gym, that's probably going to be a problem for you in the later stages of rehab. If you're a swimmer, you need to be able to be in or near a pool. If you're a cyclist, they need to have some sort of bike there. Like, uh, And we're seeing physio diversify, right? Like I'm quite at the moment, I'm doing a lot with golfers and that means we need to have people hit a golf ball and that you can't do that in every office. So like I think the equipment needs to match the patient and you can find somebody in, in every niche. You know, there uh, there would be an elite springboard diving physio floating around somewhere. There'd be someone for equestrian. We're diversifying to suit the needs of our patients and I think you should pick who you're working with accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And I need to ask you a question that has probably been a challenging one for me my entire life since I've known physio to exist and especially when I've been working with clients who could very clearly need one. Why is it that Athletes, obviously, they understand the value of a physio. But if you ask any person, you're just normal client who is in a little bit of pain to maybe go check something out with their physio. Why is everyone so reluctant to go and why is it so easily neglected, in your opinion? Yeah, 100%. There are a few things, I think. I think one, often the, the, the older school of physio would tell you to rest and stop doing things. I don't know about you, but if I miss my Saturday tea time because something's in Someone's hurting. I'm upset, man. I like my routine. I like doing the stuff I like. So I think the perception that you might be told to pull back from whatever it is that's bothered you, that is a very real concern. Uh, I think uh, trust. I think a lot of people have been like over-serviced. I think a lot of people have had been pushed and poked and prodded and had physio go well or not. Uh, but if you've, you know, if you've spent, you know, 20 appointments in someone's office over the course of six to 10 weeks and stuff didn't change, I, I would be reluctant to go back to. Um, there's a financial burden as well. Physio can be expensive and it's time-consuming. you got to go into someone's office. you got to take all your clothes off, have a stranger watch you move and then make stuff, you know, reproduce your pain essentially. None of those things are like overwhelmingly comfortable. So like being told not to do something, having to trust a stranger, having to disrobe in front of a stranger, having to pay just to sort of get back to baseline. Like they're all barriers, I think. And I think physios can do a really good job and physios can do a really bad job. And as with PTs, as with accountants, as with politicians, there are really good ones and there are really bad ones. Oh, that brings me to a good question. I think you mentioned a little bit earlier as well. How do you spot a good physiotherapist versus one that's maybe, let's call them suboptimal, or we could call them bad. It depends on what terminology you want to use. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to look for in a good physio? There needs to be an element of trust. They need to be able to really clearly explain to you 
what is going on? Number one, if you can't go to the pub after an appointment and be like, what's up? This is what's happening. This is what the physio said. This is the prognosis. This is what it looks like in the next little while in terms of recovery. How are you going to get any better if there's no clear plan? So I think heading into somebody's office, getting a good understanding of what is going on, what that might look like for the next little while, what to expect, what your involvement as the patient is going to be, you know, like, am I rehabbing? Am I resting? What What is going on? And then like a good understanding of the timeline. How long is it going to take until I could do X, Y, Z, you know, the things I like doing? I think planning, I think structure, and I think like education and advice are like the big things that a good physio will do well. I think a poor physio will spend a very, very large amount of time hands-on treating. If your physio isn't explaining to you really clearly in a way that you can understand what's going on, that's a bit of a problem. If you understand what's going on, it's much easier to recover. It's much easier to make better decisions around loading and how and when to do things than if you're kind of fumbling around in the dark. So a lack of education, an overemphasis on hands-on treatment, and I think an overemphasis on how much and how often you're in their office are all sort of things that I'd be like, they're not red flags, but I I would have questions about for all those things. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's curiosity that needs to come in at that stage. And it's interesting. I mean, there's some similar, I guess, similarities, I should say, in fact, in personal training and online coaching as well. It's, It's interesting that the goal realistically should be to get your client out of your office or off your roster unless they want like long term maintenance of what they're looking to achieve. So it takes, like you said, an ethical person to do that as well, especially if for example, they don't have that many clients and it's going to be a challenge to see whether they're doing it for the right reason in terms of bringing you back into the office. But yeah, those are some good things to look out for. And I'm hoping that many listeners today are injury and pain-free. So for someone who is injury-free, what practices would you encourage them to do on a regular basis to avoid any functional limitations, let's say, and pain, which seems to be the biggest thing that stops people? Yeah, for sure. Load management, man. Load management, load management, load management. Typically, the vast majority of like non-traumatic, so like, you know, like fall, motor vehicle accident, you know, sporting injury, like with contact or whatever, the majority of like atraumatic or incidents that pop up in the absence of trauma, a large majority of them are load-based, load right? You know, oh, I'm going to run a 10K in four weeks, so I go out and do a 4K run today because four is almost 10, and then if I do a couple more Ks each week, but by 10Ks, I'll be right when if we just like plan for that and done a 10-week prep and done an extra kilometer a week, would we maybe have been okay? Uh, Where we see sudden, really steep spikes in load, often in the weeks following that, we have things pop up. If you look at a lot of elite sporting teams, they will manage the very high-speed meters, so like how much like super high-intensity running, lifting, training their athletes are doing and actually deload athletes for certain sessions so that we can keep a really clear lid on how much total training volume they're doing your pt should be doing that for you but in a less scientific way you don't you don't need you don't need to wear a gps tracker to walk around the office at work because you're just you're not you're not trying that hard but in the gym you know you can't be testing every week you can't be pushing your 5k time trial as a runner every week there needs to be really high quality, low intensity work and maybe slightly less high quality, but really high intensity work. And the middle needs to be filled as well. If it's all high intensity all the time, or it goes from a period of not much intensity to like really, really, really hard training at a load and a level you've never done before, 
they're probably like the biggest modifiable flags. That and recovery, right? Like everybody's underslept. A whole sake of people won't be eating enough for in Australia from now. It's the end of September into summer. High alcohol intake, high work stress, low sleep. You know, all those things are going to contribute. That and load management for me are the big ones, big modifiables. And if someone turns around and says, well, you know, I really want to get this result. So I want to do four sessions a week. I want to do six spin sessions as well. And I want to then go on my 10K at the weekend. How do I manage to continue to achieve my results, but still keep in line the amount of load that I'm putting through my body? Yeah, sweet. So um, a question I like to ask is, uh, like, is this a race? Are we in a rush? If we have a time-based goal, I want to run a marathon by X date. Unreal. Let's do everything we can to get you there, but let's set out your total weekly kilometers in a way that your graph, if we plot, you know, load and time is relatively smooth and doesn't go a little bit, little bit, little bit, whoops, shit, I'm running 42 kilometers this week, you know, planning is a good thing. And then if it's not a race, right, if you want to be doing six spin sessions a week, four gym sessions, plus, you know, your high intensity or whatever, do we have to add it all next week? Or can we add a session a week or a session every fortnight or a session a month and just slowly build until by slowly building, we'll actually, you allow your body to adapt, right? It's like wearing a pair, a new pair of shoes. They rub, then you don't wear them for a few days and they rub again, but it's not as bad. And then, you know, over the course of a little while, your foot is fine. That's okay. If you wear the new pair of shoes for 10 hours on a night out, you're a bit pissed, you're not thinking about how much they rub, you get home, you take them off, there's blisters, your feet are cooked. It's not a good thing. A little bit of exposure, allow some time for adaptation. And then once adaptation has occurred, we can then increase how much we're exposing our bodies to. So less is more because we want to, I like to help my clients look at things in a long-term view, long-term lens. You can do 10 sessions next week, but if you do that for the next 10 weeks, how many sessions are you getting done in week 11? A conversation with a client I had the other day is, we want you to average as much total training load as we can for the entirety of the year, not for the next 12 weeks. Yeah, it's a great piece of advice. And I think that not only are you coaching your clients, you're also coaching them in patience as well. And I think, yeah, a great coach or physio or anyone who wants you to get the best long-term results is going to show you that timeline. I think it's so true. And I'm curious about people who then maybe go down that route or maybe they do stick with the route of overdoing the volume side of things. You find that most people don't injure themselves unless they're athletes in their given sport. They usually injure themselves from picking that thing off the floor or moving in that unusual way. So is the damage done in the gym with all the work that we're doing there? Let's say that the person is typically training them, maybe your weekend warrior Or is it down to something that's usually done outside of the gym? Do you find that there's a disparity between the amount of injuries you see done in the gym versus the amount of injuries you see outside of the gym? Or are they basically aligned with each other? Yeah, sweet. Good question. I like that. I think you're barking up the right tree by kind of mentioning that like it can sometimes be the innocuous thing that really sets somebody off, you know? I like to think of that as the straw that breaks the camel's back. Imagine you have a bucket full of water, you got like a mug you fill the mug. Every time you're doing activity, you put some water in the mug, right? If the top of the mug is tolerance, if you continue to add at some point, you will exceed your tolerance and there'll be overflow, right? Now you might fill the mug right up to the top in one hit, 
and then add a few more drops. But the few more drops are what makes everything spill out over the lip. Just because the the injury may happen when you know you hinge forward to pick up a pen off the floor, or you know you pick up a basket of washing, whatever it was that set you off, if it's a load based injury, is often more an indication of you being at your limit for tolerance rather than you being unable to pick up a load of washing or a pen from the floor, right? So often, is it gym-related or is it out of the gym-related? A lot of the time, how the injury occurred isn't necessarily, or like when, isn't necessarily the most important thing, but like what were the, what are all of the factors? What's, what, let's look at the individual as a whole, training history, injury history, social history, and, they, and the history of the presenting complaints, like why are they in, why are they seeing us? And when you do that, often the solution becomes a little bit more clear, right? But no, absolutely. And I think it just goes to show that it's kind of a similar thing in the same way as stress as well. I always say that when I start with someone on their health and fitness journey, quite often they think the training and nutrition side is the overwhelming thing. But realistically, what we've just done is we've added a lot onto someone's busy schedule when they were already operating at 90%. So we've now overflowed that cup by essentially putting more stress on them from a physiological perspective and maybe even an emotional, psychological perspective because they're navigating their new experiences with food. They're trying to heal that maybe dysfunctional fattening that they've had. And then you've got to ask them, you know, was, was it the training on nutrition? Was the straw that broke the camel's back? Yes, it was, but that's not necessarily the thing that's the problem here. It's all the stress that lies beneath that. So I think it's very much similar in what you just said, if I'm correct in saying. A hundred percent. And like stress, you know, the emotional breakdown doesn't necessarily come as a direct result of the most traumatic thing. Often it's a result of a whole stack of stuff. And same with injury, same with training. And humans are incredibly complicated, right? And the more, the longer you, the longer you spend alive, the more that sort of makes sense. It just, there's just no one factor. Yeah. And I'm keen to go down that route. You mentioned humans are complicated and I completely agree. And on the note of differences between humans, we obviously have gender differences and I'm curious to see, is there many differences in the injuries that we experience as men or as women? This is a complicated question and it's a complicated, and it's a complicated answer. I think up until recently, men had a really different training history than women. If you were any good at sport in school as a man in Australia, I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of Australian kids around my age, like I'm 93 born, so I'm 29. There was a gym at school, and we were in the gym lifting, doing some preventative stuff. In my very limited experience. The, uh, the the same opportunity. I went to a co-ed school. The same opportunities. It wasn't provided at the same level to female athletes. I think if you were in the elite stream, it was. So, like you know, Morgs, my missus, water polo player. She was at the New South Wales Institute of Sports since she was twelve or fifteen or something. She's a weapon. But I don't think that we had the same experience. So I think the training history is really different. There's, there was a in Australia. Do you, do you know what Australian rules football is or AFL? So uh, the ACL, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I might be wrong here. There was a really high ACL prevalence in female athletes in the AFLW, in the women's league. And I think part of that is just exposure. And I think as we see the training styles change, injury history and injuries are going to look a whole lot more similar. I don't actually think it's that different at present. Could be wrong. Anecdotally, everybody gets injured. Everybody has problems with everything all the time. Hard to say, and I'm not up to date enough on the data to answer the question well enough. So TBC is my final answer. Training history, training history probably affects some things. 
I'm sure there are gender differences. I don't know what they are well enough to outline them in a podcast. Perfect. So when we do your marriage check-in, we'll also ask that question again as well. <laughs> yeah, give me a year. I'll do some research. And I think with the rise of professionalism in women's sport, those things are going to change. We're going to have a much clearer picture of what the differences are and how to fix them. Yeah, I guess we don't have that backlog of data just yet. Maybe at the highest levels, absolutely. But on that note as well, I'm really curious because we see you just mentioned AFL and I'm very curious about other sports. Why are we seeing such a high frequency of injuries? Maybe like I'm more familiar with like English football and soccer and the sense of how many injuries will happen. It will be rare if you see a game that goes by without someone experiencing some type of niggle or injury. Is it due to the high-paced nature of the sports these days, the intensity of the games coming thick and fast? Or is there a reason why we're experiencing or at least seeing many more injuries take place, even professionals at the highest level when they should have the best access to the world's best physios, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera? Why is it we're seeing an increase in prevalence of injuries across top ends of the sports? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, if you look at the data, I think the NBA in the bubble season post-COVID the ACL or injury rate was significantly higher, right? Coming off the back of lockdown, load change is a very real thing. I think the last two years have been really interesting in professional sport. We've seen a really, we had like for the first time ever, we had professional athletes who maybe didn't have access to their clubs, state-of-the-art facilities year-round because the world stopped for six to eight months, depending on where you were living. Yeah, people were training. No, it wasn't the same. Competition looked very different. Some didn't run. Some were cancelled. Some had shortened seasons. Some had seasons where they were sleeping in hotel rooms at Disneyland like the NBA. Like there was very, very large, very strange change in the last two years. Outside of that though, if you take the absolute best of the best and you ask them to express their physiology and their physicality to the height of their abilities repeatedly, Stuff goes wrong. Like the NBA, I'm a mad NBA fan. They play 82 games a year. They are the the odds are like one in a billion, sort of thing to get there. Those dudes are training, playing, practicing, thinking. They to get to that level, and particularly as the rise of the professionalism of the child or professionalizing children takes place. These people have been doing this shit for a long time, and they are doing a lot of it. Right, wear and tear happens. Accidents happen. When it's that big, that fast, that powerful, it's always going to happen, right? It's been happening for a very long time and it's going to continue to happen. So I just think that the, the, the be-all and end-all is that injury prevention isn't a thing that we can do. Even at the highest level, even with all the facilities, even with all the physios on hand, it's just not a possibility where we're demanding so much of the athletes. It all comes back to load management, right? You, you, and you can't, you can't predict an injury because there's no way of knowing if you successfully prevented one. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's increasing the probability of it, right? But not an actual guarantee. Yes, but there are too many variables to control and there are no guarantees. So the best we can do is equip people to handle the stresses that they're going to place their body under repeatedly. And we're going to try and replicate that in-game scenario as best as we can and prepare them for it. But physical preparedness is great. There are always going to be uncontrolled variables like a, like a human. Right. If, if if somebody is running at you in a contact sport, we can get you to have someone run at you a thousand and one times. We can't replicate it exactly. We can do our best, but I, I don't think there are any. We're never going to see a world. I don't think without you know like Iron Man suits where there are no sort of injuries. <laughs> and even then, you're still going to hit the inside of this. Tony Stark still gets hurt. So. <laughs> 
No, it's such a great point. And I, I actually didn't think about that running through the underpredictable scenarios of a sport. Like there's, you know, a million and one different things that can happen in a high impact, high intensity sport. You might have a little bit of predictability when you're doing a singular focused race where things don't change as much. But if you are playing a sport like football, basketball, tennis, where a lot of it is dictated by the other player and also how you go into that sport, obviously that can be more managed, but yeah, you can't predict what's going to happen when there's a ball involved and when there's other people involved, essentially, especially if it's yet yeah, a more than one person sport. Even when you can, like like golf, right? The ball doesn't move, only you do. Like darts, like 10-pin bowling, people still get hurt doing those things. So like we can prepare you all we want, but sometimes stuff just happens and you get hurt. Yeah, preach. I think that's a, a, a big takeaway message there. So do the best that you can, but you probably can't prevent it all. But there's a high likeliness that you can increase the probability of that. And there's, is there many genetic factors to that as well? You obviously see a lot of people who maybe go through their entire sporting career, sporting career, sorry, or training careers, go almost without a niggle for you know decades on end. Is there a genetic component to that as well? Uh, maybe uh, the sort of person that goes through their entire life without having an injury, I don't see. Like, <laughs> that's just not who's in my office. True. <laughs> um, so I'm, they, I'm sure they exist, right? I'm, there are some hyper-durable people out there. I don't know about a genetic component, but there are certainly some things that pop up, like the prevalence of back pain in gen pop, like in general populations. It's like, it's enormous, right? Like a quick Google, if you'd go, I'm just going to do it now. Prevalence, back pain, gen pop. It's like oh, the one month period prevalence of low back pain is like 39%, right? Like that's, that's absurd. I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher <laughs> and that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And then things like patellofemoral pain, so like anterior knee pain, like a runner's knee, the, the, the lifetime recurrence rate is like 100%. Like if you've had it once, it's going to come back. So is that genetic? I don't know. Are some things going to hit people in certain ways? Yeah. Um, you know, there are things like jumper's knee or, you know, like back pain in golfers where like certain populations are going to be more exposed, you know, like elbow injuries in high-level baseball players. Certain populations are absolutely going to be affected by things at a higher clip. Uh, I don't know about the genetics, genomics side of things, but it probably Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But let's get back onto the people you do see, because they're probably the type of people listening to today's conversation as well. And I want to take a segue into the training side of things now. I think that based on what you've said so far, it's that training or at least yeah, putting load through your muscles in the right way is probably one of the best ways to allow us to manage our pain, improve the amount of pain we're experiencing, and also our functional limitations as well. So Something I came across on your very, very popular Instagram and some of your great reels is that you did an Instagram like PDF um, workout program on the back of a cereal box. So we find a lot of people are still going down that route of just picking their influencers' favorite training program. Can you explain for us why it's so bad to do them, especially when they're super affordable, our favorite influencers in shape? Why are those to be avoided and what other alternatives do we have? Okay, so I suppose there's two components to this. One is physiological adaptation, and two is hot people using themselves as their case study where N equals one is not necessarily valid proof of being able to produce a result in you. So let's jump into one first, right? Repeated stimulus leads to change. 
i.e. you spend time in the sun once, you get sunburned. If you spend too much time in the sun, it peels and blisters and it gets nasty, especially if you live in Australia. If you are repeatedly exposed to small to medium-sized amounts of ultraviolet light, you tan, right? And your skin tone, you produce more melanin or whatever. I don't know what the process, the physiological process, but your skin becomes darker as a response, right? Training is the same. If you repeatedly expose yourself to a, the same or similar stimulus, and it has to be repeated, right? Your body is incredibly clever and your brain goes, oh, I have to bicep curl 12 kilos, not 12 kilos, but I have to bicep curl and be able to move this weight. I need more muscle mass to be able to do that. And holy fuck, this thing just keeps getting, I don't know if I can swear on the podcast, sorry, dude. <laughs> I, must, I swear a lot. By all means, but you're this, this weight times, keeps dude. getting heavier. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, this thing keeps getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Like I need more and more muscle mass to move it. It, it, it lays muscle mass down. So by why you shouldn't necessarily pick and choose and take bits from different people is it needs to be repeated repeated and it needs to be progressively overloaded so it needs to be gradually getting harder because we stimulate we respond we stimulate we respond right or we adapt when adaptation if, if you did the same workout every day for the next 20 years it would be hard and it was hard initially in not very long it's not going to be very challenging and we, we the law of diminishing returns kicks in we get less of an adaptation until we get none so you have to stimulate and you have to progressively overload that stimulus to get a bit, to get to continue to get an adaptation. Part 2 of that is just because somebody looks really cute without any clothes on and they did it does not mean it will work for you, right? I have a friend. He is 6400 kilos, green god of a man. He walks into the gym and looks at a barbell and just box up, right? He went vegan for a bit, he looked very sick. Um, we all teased him about how skinny he got and then he started eating more and went back to the gym and he just blew back up again. He's like the same size. I have another friend who like trains fairly consistently and just doesn't look like he trains, right? So just because somebody is in really good shape and they are doing something does not mean it will work for you and your body. You might follow somebody who is rampantly abusing steroids or has um, a really, really, really extensive training history, and they might be doing an absolute truckload of training. You may not be ready for that same amount. That same routine might not work for you. You actually need somebody to assess you and to appropriately plan for you based off your exercise history and based off you and your personality and what you're like and your needs and your wants and your goals. A PDF program, I don't think does that. I'm yet to find the one that does but I'm also not in the habit of buying them. So, you, you know, you might have the one. I don't know. Not you, but, you know, someone out there might have found the one. Um, but typically affordable things are more accessible and I like accessible. Not everybody can afford to have something tailored for them. But if you were to be doing something that was off the back of a cereal box per se, needs to be repeated stimulus, needs to be progressively overloaded, and it, you need to be able to adjust it for yourself to make sure that it's helping you get towards goals. Absolutely. I think that's a solid and well-rounded answer. And uh, you've put a few influences out of business based on that, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll hope that they they'll transition get, to something still, more they'll of still, they'll still get paid. They'll still get paid. It's okay. They'll be right. Yeah. You should start maybe writing programs for your Greek God friend, and maybe he can start selling them on his own Instagram. You could both go into business together. Yeah. Well, I know I program for him, <laughs> but you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm not sure. I'm yet. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Being a physio, we're not we're not legally allowed to use uh, testimonial content in Australia. There are like real because I'm a health practitioner, I'm re- I'm registered with APRA, 
the Australian Health Practitioners Registration something something. We're not allowed to use testimonial content because it can be misleading and coercive. So I just don't do before and after stuff. I don't really see the point in it. Legally, I'm not allowed to. If I was legally allowed to, I don't know if I would. I just think, again, if it worked for them, that doesn't. I can't guarantee you a result. It is posting content that guarantees you a result or that leads you to think you'll get a particular result? Is it helpful? I don't know. But uh, fuck, I'd be rich if I could. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking it was a solid business idea there. And on that note as well, what are some better options? Do you know any that are out there or does it just come down to finding someone who can coach you, who can take all your needs on board and then provide something for you? I know that's quite an expensive option for some people. And that's why I'm keen to know if you have any in between, between cereal box workouts and, you know, a bespoke coaching. Yeah, 100%. There are a whole stack of apps that have really good options, right? There are a whole stack of, you know, like Couch to 5K is a fantastic way to get into running, right? It's, they have people involved in that team that help you start from zero and get to 5K in like a really heavily regulated, well-planned, really well-structured way of doing things. People out there have incredible training apps that are done really well right? James Smith, the James Smith PT, his app is like, I think it was like six or 12 or $15 or something like that. There are, and, and they're behind the scenes. It's programmed by people who are highly educated, working really hard, doing a really good job, right? There are a truckload of ways to do things in a way that will work for you. Often you just need to do a little bit of digging, right? Like there is, there are for every person that is not doing a great job in the health and fitness space on social space on social media, there are probably two or three, but you just haven't come across them yet because it isn't sexy. Like you've asked me some really tricky questions today and a lot of my answers have been, I don't know, because I don't know. But saying I don't know is not sexy. It's not the glorious, beautiful, wonderful, flippable response, but there are people doing a really good job and working really hard to make sure they do a really good job. They exist. Their service prices are not all obscenely expensive. Often the ones you'll find first are more expensive because they're better known. Look, look deeply, ask questions. If somebody is outside your price point, ask for an alternative. I don't think that's rude. Hey, I can't afford that. Are you aware of anybody else that offers a service in a slightly different price bracket? If somebody asked me that question, I would find them an answer. I believe in access. I believe that you should be able to get help if you want it. There's somebody out there probably really good at their job, probably programming for like 50 bucks for a 10-week block because they're just getting started or they're undervaluing. There, there are people out there that exist that are doing a really good job. Find them. Yeah, super, super true. And on that note, when you do find them, you'll probably find deloads uh, maybe planned into their programs. And you're quite a proponent of speaking about deloads. I think you even mentioned that you do one once every month, if I'm not mistaken, which is quite a high frequency in my eyes. It's not Often I hear many people say that. Can you give us your take on DLIs, why they're so important and why you implement them so frequently? Yeah, 100%. I like load to undulate. I like load to build an intensity and taper off and build and taper off. So that we get this nice steady curve of load just increasing off into the distance forever. One of the things you'll probably find is that a deload week is incredibly boring. The week after a deload week, you feel like the strongest freaking dude ever. I personally, at the moment, am probably deloading like once every six to eight weeks in like my own training. I deload clients when I think they need it, when performance dips, when output dips, or when there is like repeated negative or like this is really hard, this is challenging feedback. That 
for some of my clients is as high as once a month. And then the three weeks they're doing outside of those, that one week are fucking hard. They're very hard. Um, and then some clients are deloaded like once every 12 weeks. Um, I think, uh, it's a really, a deload is a helpful tool to help manage load. It's a really nice way to help training feel fresh and fun and interesting. It's a nice way to help manage fatigue, both physical and mental. Are they 100% absolutely necessary? No. You know, like uh, players in high-level sporting leagues and stuff don't necessarily have a deload week, but they have an off-season. So, like, if you're a power lifter, you don't necessarily need to deload. But in the lead-up to prep, you would train quite hard, and then after the comp, you probably wouldn't. So that maybe isn't like a structured like per X period deload, but there are periods of high, higher intensities of work, periods of lower intensity. I just don't think we can train at like 85 to 100% year round. Yeah, no, that's completely fair enough. And do you recommend that most people stay in the gym? Let's say they don't have an off season like a high level athlete or a power lifter. Do you encourage them to go into the gym and just do some low intensity work or do you encourage people to just take the time off? I think it depends on the client. I am like, I'm like super type B. I need routine. Without routine, I literally fall apart. Um, I have like a very tightly run Google calendar because if I don't put something into the Google calendar, it doesn't exist and it doesn't get done. So for me, I need the maintenance of routine or at least I feel like I need the maintenance of routine. Some of my clients are like, it seems to be a large proportion, are like super highly strong type A overachievers. Some of those guys and girls and theys and everybody, some of those people, they really need flexibility because their life is very rigid. So again, I think it depends on the client. I like the maintenance of routine personally. Some of my overachievers are not very good at giving partial effort. So for some of them, week off, don't go to the gym. You'll, they feel silly lifting it below their like peak capacity. And that's actually okay for them to take the week and not do anything and enjoy life rather than go in and feel like they're a horse that's being held back by the reins or a baby whose toy has been taken away. Yeah, I think it's sometimes a very, very hard task to bring people down to a baseline where they're actually doing like 50% of the work, especially if they are these type high, high achievers. I don't know why. I think they have a, a affinity towards health and fitness and personal trainers as well because I work with the same. Or maybe it's the nature of living in a city sometimes as well. You just get these people who are super high sprung and you ask them to do half of what they're doing. You're like, nope, you ask them to do nothing at all. They're like, ah, okay, I can accept this, right? So I do completely agree. And quite often my approach for deloads is like finding when they get their holiday or when they have got a few stressful days and they might need to spend more time with their you know, children over the weekend and just like almost intuitively planning it in like that rather than having it anything structured. So I think we're very aligned on that approach as well. So coming full circle, um, I haven't seen you touch much on nutrition. And is that because it's not something you lean into? Is that something that you support your clients with? Is that something that you would recommend for a, a patient you're treating? Fully. I love food. Food is great. I, my degree, my like formal education no nutrition, no food coverage whatsoever. It's, I think food is quite like Pandora's box. You kind of, I, I, every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, and quickly slam it shut. That's a lot in there. I, I have friends who are studying to be dietitians, which is kind of like a higher level of food qualification out here. It is vast. It is complicated. We are seeing this, I, I think, enormous rise of people with really disordered relationships with food as a result of the rise of social media. That is my opinion. I don't know if it's correct. Don't hold me to that. 
But I think it's really easy to make very large mistakes that have a huge knock-on or huge follow-on effect with food. I'm undereducated in that area. It's not for me to touch as far as I'm, I'm concerned. One, I'm not insured for it. Two, I would be under-servicing my clients and doing a really poor job if I was to try and do it. And three, there are people out there who have devoted their entire lives to it and they nail it and they're so good at it and they're so helpful and they're just fantastic. See those guys and girls. See those people, right? They're they're, they're smashing it. I don't think I need to do a short course in nutrition and provide a nutrition option. I think I would prefer just do exercise, fucking nail exercise, be really good at it, smash it. And then should your goals be purely body composition, that's probably when you'd want to go and talk to somebody who does a much better job with food than me. Yeah, that's a super fair answer. And as we begin to wrap up this interview, I want to ask you about one of your more controversial opinions about not working in with people in the gym. Can you share your thoughts on why you don't like that? (laughs) I hate it so much, hey. I hate it so much. I was at the gym. There's one hack squat at my gym, right? Uh, My old gym. And I was hack squatting. And I'd done, I just finished my first set. I had two sets to go. This PT came up and was like, hi, could I, my, could my client and I work in with you? And I was like, oh, no. Like, I'm doing two more sets, 90 seconds rest. So we're looking at three and a half minutes tops. Like, I'll be super fast. I'll even cut my rest short, no dramas. Three minutes, right? Call it, call it four if I like went and had a water break and like dicked around for a bit. And the PT was like, no, no, we're just going to cut in and like move my stuff and just did it. I was like, okay and then superseted it with bulgarians any and then superseted it with bulgarian split squats anyway so the client just could have split the superset and done something else i I just think that we if you don't have three minutes for, for a piece or three to ten minutes for a piece of equipment to be in use that you need you can't make an adjustment you can't make a change if it's that rigid do you really have time to be at the gym you know like what if the bus was late or something like I just think we try and cut it really fine and we are the most important planet person in the whole universe. If I was in a bar sitting at a table and I got there first and was at the table, would you come up and be like, hey, man, I'm waiting on that table. How long have you got left? I understand it's shared equipment. I understand <laughs> it's, it's a shared true. space. But I, I think that the, the, the assumption that somebody is willing to work in with you is rude. I understand that some people sit there for hours and – like pull out the you know the the, the, the TikTok the you know the, the bloke does one set of squats with an empty barbell pulls out the camping chair and sets it up sits down. I understand that people take forever. I understand that people hog equipment. I get it. It sucks. I, I hate it. I don't like being on the other end of it and waiting as well. But like, I, I think you can change what you're doing. I think you can split supersets. You can go and do something else and come back. And then like ultimately, if your gym only has one squat rack and that dude's always using it, like could you potentially find a different gym if it was that much of a problem? Um, I'm not saying move gyms because you shouldn't ask people to share, but I'm saying there should be ample equipment. And if there isn't, if there's one hip thrust machine and everybody wants it, I think you can talk to your gym and recommend or ask that they buy more. Like They are trying to look after you guys and service everybody. So if there are common friction points and pain points, I think we can find a better solution than ha- having to make people work in. I don't have any huge problem with it if it's necessary. I just think that sometimes people think that you should in the age of in the post-covid age you should use the equipment and then completely wipe it from top to tail between sets, not throw your dirty sweat towel on there, cough all over it and then let somebody jump in. I think practice like the the idea of working in is great. I think the Practically, it doesn't work. I'm I'm not an enormous guy. I'm six foot two. 
you'll have to put things up and down for each other. Do I return it to the settings that I was using or that you were using? Like, I just don't love it. You know, I, I would prefer train somewhere where there's more equipment and you didn't need to do that. Or I'd prefer modify, you know, if I've got an incline barbell bench and someone's using it, I can do dumbbell. It's not, it's okay. Yeah, dude. I think that, I think it's a pretty fair approach. And I actually like the example that you gave of if you're in a restaurant or a pub and be like, how, it, actually, whilst you go to the bathroom, can I just sit at this table whilst you just rest and you go to the bathroom? I'll give you back once I'm yeah, done. Yeah, you have half a conversation get up, go across the room. I'll sit and do my thing. And then you come back. It's a shared space, but you know, you don't ask to sit on somebody else's picnic rug at the park, right? It's, there are a lot of shared spaces that we all pay to access. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to share them. I understand there should be time limitations and there's courtesy and etiquette, but I think largely what this boils down to is that gym etiquette is really shit. We do a really bad job of it. People are not sharing. People are using stuff for way too long. People are really rude about cutting in because people are doing those things. I think like if you just try to be not necessarily on your phone, present, time your rest sets, get off the, you know, if you're doing four sets, four working sets with a minute and a half rest, that's only what's that six minutes plus working time, eight minutes, maybe 10 minutes max on a machine if you're not supersetting. And that's four sets. You're not necessarily doing all that. I just think people can be, nicer to each other in the gym you know joey swole on tiktok does a lot of stuff around that could we not just be a little more courteous and then not have to work in but also like not have to upset people by we could do better as as gym goers i think is the ultimate answer to that question where do you stand on this do you ask people to work in no i think i've been in the gym for so long now that if I see someone on that piece of equipment I'm using, I'm just going to go find an alternative quite often. Or I'll just kind of give them, you know, the like the approach of going towards them and ask them how long they've got left. But I'm never going to ask anyone to work in. I'm just going to either wait until they're finished or I'm going to go find an alternative. I think that, yeah, if for me, it's like my training is important, but it's not absolutely imperative that if, like you mentioned, if I can't do an inclined bench press, I can't go and do an inclined dumbbell bench press. And I think that sometimes we do place too much importance. And like you said, we feel sometimes like the most important person in the gym needing to, to get on this piece of equipment. But quite often it's, I always, I don't enjoy it. Like I do recommend my clients to do it if they can, but I don't like the whole, you rest your rest period. You're then having to take off their weights, put back their weights during the time that you're supposed to be resting. It's like a, you go, I go situation. I, I think it can be a little bit messy to be completely honest. So I'm like, I'd just rather ask them. And if they're close to being finished, amazing, I'll wait. And if not, then I'm going to go find an alternative. A hundred percent. And like, I think one probably important thing to touch on if somebody was listening and they didn't have uh, like a wealth of training knowledge and they weren't sure about what to do, it's totally acceptable to ask, ask, it's okay. But like, if you know better and you have a way that you could do something else and swap, politely ask how long they'll take, go and do something else. And you can be like, Hey, how long do you have left for squatting? And they're like, I've got six sets. It's going to be 10 minutes. But Hey man, I'm just going to be over there on the whatever, blah, 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 blah. Can you just like either grab me or like give me the eyes and let me know you're done and I'll come over and jump in next. I'm going to leave my bottle here, you know, like the dollar on the pool table type thing. I think you can call next, absolutely. And I think you can call next in a way that isn't rude, but that's still like, yep, I understand you're doing your shit. I'm not more important than you. I don't need you to unload a barbell so that I can do a military press or whatever. I can use the equipment after you and we can make that work. Breach. So be nicer in the gym and never ask Tommy to work in if he's working on the machine. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
<laughs> so sorry, I want to wrap this up now and I want to ask you a couple of final questions. The first is what impact do you want to leave on the health and fitness industry? What impact do I want to leave on the health and fitness industry? That's cool. I like that question. I want people to have access to and be able to train like a professional should they want to. I want them to be as educated about a professional athlete or about the like, like a, a physio. I want you to have a better understanding of your anatomy and your movement patterns, how that all works and how it's going to impact your life. I want people to enjoy exercise. I want people to have training solutions that line up with their goals and that are hyper palatable and enjoyable and part of what they do. That's probably what, I, what sort of impact I'd like to have. Dude, I love it. And if people want to follow you and look at the work that you're doing, where is the best place for them to find you? Uh, Insta, I'm at tommys.tips. I think there's a dot. Let me just check. Go the plug. Uh, yeah, tommys.tips is probably like the, that's probably where the vast majority of my content is. I, I don't post much at the moment, which is kind of nice. As you'll know, content creation is a real, it's a challenge. I really enjoy it. But my like PT list is like very close to full. It's almost October. I'm after next week. I'm not taking on any more clients until next year, um, and I keep having people coming in and showing up, wanting help without posting. So there's a heap of stuff on there that's really useful um, that I think you'll enjoy if you haven't come across me on the internet yet. There's not a great deal of new stuff. If there's stuff you want answers to that isn't there, message me and I'll build the content for you. But there's no great drive for me at the moment to be putting out a heap of new stuff purely because I got a whole star I got a great team of athletes who I'm looking after and I would much prefer to do a better job with them than put out content for people who I haven't met yet you know dude I yeah I completely understand and I appreciate you making the time for today's podcast and speaking with me and giving your wisdom to the world as well so thank you for being here Tommy I really appreciate it and that was the simply fit podcast I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.